Chapter Thirteen, Part One of Vandover and the Brute. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Vandover and the Brute, by Frank Norris, Chapter Thirteen, Part One. Just before Lent and about three months after the death of Vandover's father, Henrietta Vance gave a reception and dance at her house. The affair was one of a series that the girls of the Cotillon had been giving to the men of the same club. Vandover had gone to all but the last, which had occurred while he was at Coronado. He was sure of meeting Geary, young Haight, Turner Ravis, and all the people of his set at these functions and had always managed to have a very jolly time. He had been very quiet since his father's death, and had hardly gone out at all. In fact, since Eda Wade's death and his trip down the coast, he had seen none of his acquaintances, except the boys. But he determined now that he would go to this dance, and, in so doing, return once more to the world that he knew. By this time he had become pretty well accustomed to his father's death, and saw no reason why he should not have a good time. At first he thought he would ask Turner to go with him, but in the end made up his mind to go alone. Instead, one always had a better time when one went alone. Young Haight would have liked to have asked Turner, but did not, because he supposed, of course, that Vandover would take her. In the end Turner had Delphine act as her escort. Vandover arrived at Henrietta Vance's house at about half-past eight. A couple of workmen were stretching the last guy-ropes of the awning that reached over the sidewalk. Every window of the house was lighted. The front door was opened for the guest before he could ring, and he passed up the stairs, catching a glimpse of the parlours through the portieres of the doors. As yet, they were empty of guests. The floors were covered with canvas and the walls decorated with fern leaves. In a window recess, one of the caterer's men was setting out two punch bowls and a multitude of glass cups. Three or four musicians were gathered about the piano, tuning up, and one heard the subdued note of a cornet. The air was heavy with the smell of pinks and of La France roses. At the turn of the stairs, the Vance's second girl, in a white lawn cap, directed him to the gentleman's dressing-room, which was the room of Henrietta Vance's older brother. About a dozen men were here before him, some rolling up their overcoats into balls and stowing them with their canes in the corners of the room, others laughing and smoking together, and still others who were either brushing their hair before the mirrors or sitting on the bed in their stocking feet, breathing upon their patent leathers, warming them before putting them on. There were one or two who knew no one who stood about unhappily, twisting the tissue paper from the buttons of their new gloves, and looking stupidly at the pictures on the walls of the room. Occasionally one of the gentlemen would step to the door and look out into the hall to see if the ladies whom they were escorting were yet to come out of their dressing-room, ready to go down. On the centre-table stood three boxes of cigars and a great many packages of cigarettes, while extra hair-brushes, whisk-brooms, and papers of pins had been placed about the bureau. 
As Vandover came in, he nodded pleasantly to such of the men as he knew, and, after hiding his hat and coat under the bed, shook himself into his clothes again and rearranged his dress tie. The house was filling up rapidly. One heard the deadened roll of wheels in the street outside, the banging of carriage doors, and an incessant rustle of stiff skirts ascending the stairs. From the ladies' dressing room came an increasing soprano chatter, while downstairs the orchestra around the piano in the back parlour began to snarl and whine louder and louder. About the halls and stairs one caught brief glimpses of white and blue opera cloaks edged with swans down, alternating with the gleam of a starched shirt bosom and the glint of a highly polished silk hat. Odours of sachet and violets came and went elusively, or mingled with those of the roses and pinks. An air of gaiety and excitement began to spread throughout the house. "'Hello, old man!' "'Hello, Van!' Charlie Geary, young Haight, and Ellis came in together. "'Hello, boys!' answered Vandover, hairbrush in hand, turning about from the mirror, where he had been trying to make his hair lie very flat and smooth. "'Look here,' said Geary, showing him a dance card already full. "'I've got every dance promised. I looked out for that at the last one of these affairs, made all my arrangements and engagements then. Now, you bet, I don't get left on any dance. That's the way you want to rustle. Ah!' he went on. "'Had a bully sleep last night.' I knew I was going to be out late tonight, so I went to bed at nine, didn't wake up till seven. Had a fine cutlet for breakfast. It was precisely at this moment that Geary got his first advancement in life. Mr. Beale, Jr., head clerk in the great firm of Beale and Storey, came up to him as he was drawing off his overcoat. How is Fisher? asked Geary. Bill Jr. pulled him over into a corner, talking in a low voice. "'He's even worse than yesterday,' he answered. "'I think we shall have to give him a vacation, and that's what I want to speak to you about. "'If you can, Geary, I should like to have you take his place for a while, "'at least until we get through with this contract case. Now, "'I don't know about Fisher. He's sick so often. "'I'm afraid we may have to let him go altogether.' Suddenly. The orchestra downstairs broke out into a clash of harmony, and then swung off with the beat and cadence of a waltz. The dance was beginning. A great bustle and hurrying commenced about the dressing rooms, and at the head of the stairs. Everybody went down. In the front parlour by the mantel, Henrietta Vance and Turner stood on either side of Mrs. Vance, receiving, shaking hands, and laughing and talking with the different guests who came up singly, in couples or in noisy groups. No one was dancing yet. The orchestra stopped with a flourish of the cornet, and at once a great crowding and pushing began amidst a vast hum of talk. The cards were being filled up. A swarm of men gathered about each of the more popular girls, passing her card from hand to hand while she smiled upon them all helplessly and good-naturedly. The dance cards had run short, and some of the men were obliged to use their visiting cards. With these in one hand to the stump of a pencil in the other, they ran about from group to group, pushing, elbowing, and calling over one another's heads like brokers in a stock exchange. Geary, however, walked about calmly, smiling contentedly, very good-humoured. From time to time he stopped such a one of the hurrying, excited men as he knew, 
and showed him his card made out weeks before, saying, Ah, how's that? I am all fixed. Made all my engagements at the last one of these affairs, even up to six extras. That's the way you want to rustle. Young Haight was very popular. Everywhere the girls nodded and smiled at him, many even saving a place in their cards for him before he had asked. Ellis took advantage of the confusion to disappear. He went up into the deserted dressing-room, chose a cigar, unbuttoned his vest, and sat down in one chair, putting his feet upon another. The hum of the dance came to him in a prolonged and soothing murmur, and he enjoyed it in some strange way of his own, listening and smoking, stretched out at ease in the deserted dressing-room. Vandover went up to Turner Ravis, smiling and holding out his hand. She seemed to be curiously embarrassed when she saw him, and did not smile back at him. He asked to see her card, but she drew her hand quickly from his, telling him that she was going home early and was not dancing at all, that in fact she had to receive instead of dance. It was evident to Vandover that he had done something to displease her, and he quickly concluded that it was because he had not asked her to go with him that evening. He turned from her to Henrietta Vance, as though nothing unusual had happened, resolving to see her later in the evening, and in the meanwhile invent some suitable excuse. Henrietta Vance did not even see his hand. She was a very jolly girl, ordinarily, and laughed all the time. Now she looked him squarely in the face without so much as a smile, at once angry and surprised. Never had anything seemed so hateful and disagreeable. Vandover put his hand back into his pocket, trying to carry it all off with a laugh, saying, in order to make her laugh with him as he used to do, Hello! How do you do this evening? It's a pleasant morning this afternoon. How do you do? She answered nervously, refusing to laugh. Then she turned from him abruptly to talk to young Height's little cousin, Hetty. Mrs. Vance was neither embarrassed nor nervous as the girls had been. She stared calmly at Vandover and said with a peculiar smile, I am surprised to see you here, Mr. Vandover. An hour later the dance was in full swing. Almost every number was a waltz or a two-step, the music being the topical songs and popular airs of the day set to dance music. About half-past ten o'clock, between two dances, the cornet sounded a trumpet call. The conversation ceased in a moment, and Henrietta Vance's brother, standing by the piano, called out, The next dance will be the first extra, adding immediately, A waltz! The dance recommenced. In the pauses of the music, one heard the rhythmic movement of the feet shuffling regularly in one-two-three time. Some of the couples waltzed fast, whirling about the rooms, bearing around corners with a swirl and swing of silk skirts, the girls' faces flushed and perspiring, their eyes half-closed, their bare white throats warm, moist, and alternately swelling and contracting with their quick breathing. On certain of these girls, the dancing produced a peculiar effect. The continued motion, the whirl of the lights, the heat of the room, the heavy perfume of the flowers, the cadence of the music, even the physical fatigue, reacted in some strange way upon their oversensitive feminine nerves, the monotony of repeated sensation producing some sort of mildly hypnotic effect, a morbid hysterical pleasure the more exquisite because mixed with pain. 
These were the girls whom one heard declaring that they could dance all night, the girls who could dance until they dropped. Other of the couples danced with the greatest languor and gravity, their arms held out rigid and at right angles with their bodies. About the doors and hallways stood the unhappy gentleman who knew no one, watching the others dance, feigning to be amused. Some of them, however, had ascended to the dressing room and began to strike up an acquaintance with each other and with Ellis, smoking incessantly, discussing business, politics, and even religion. In the ladies' dressing room, two of the maids were holding a long conversation in low tones, their heads together. Evidently it was concerning something dreadful. They continually exclaimed, Oh! and Ah! suddenly sitting back from each other, shaking their heads and biting their never lips. On the top floor in the hall, the servants in their best clothes leaned over the balustrade, nudging each other, talking in hoarse whispers, or pointing with thick fingers swollen with dishwater. All up and down the stairs were the couples who were sitting out to dance, some of them even upon the circular sofa in the hall over the first landing. The music stopped, leaving a babble of talk in the air. The couples fell apart for an instant but a great clapping of hands broke out, and the tired musicians heroically recommenced. As soon as the short encore was done, there was a rush for the lemonade and punch bowls. The guests thronged around them, joking each other. Hello, are you here again? Oh, this is dreadful. This makes six times I've seen you here. A smell of coffee rose into the air from the basement. It was about half past eleven. The next dance was the supper dance, and the gentlemen hurried about anxiously, searching the stairs, the parlours, and the conservatory for the girls who had promised them this dance weeks before. The musicians were playing a march, and the couples crowded down the narrow stairs in single file, the ladies drawing off their gloves. The tired musicians stretched themselves, rubbed their eyes, and began to talk aloud in the deserted parlours. Supper was served in the huge billiard-room in the basement, and was eaten in a storm of gaiety. The same parties and sets tried to get together at the same table. Henrietta Vance's party was particularly noisy. At her table there was an incessant clamour of screams and shouts of laughter. One ate oysters à la poulet, terrapin salads, and croquets. The wines were sartonais and champagnes. With the nuts and dessert the caps came on, and in a few minutes were cracking and snapping all over the room. Six of the unfortunates who knew no one, but who had managed through a common affliction to become acquainted with each other, gathered at a separate table. Ellis was one of their number. He levied a twenty-five assessment, and tipped the waiter a dollar and a half. This one accordingly brought them extra bottles of champagne, which they found consolation for the ennui of the evening. After supper the dancing began again. The little stiffness and constraint of the earlier part of the evening was gone. By this time nearly everybody, except the unfortunates, knew everybody else. The good dinner and the champagne had put them all into an excellent humour, and they all commenced to be very jolly. They began a Virginia reel, still wearing the magician's caps and Phrygian bonnets of tissue paper. Young Haight was with Turner Ravis as much as possible during the evening, very happy and excited. Something had happened. It was impossible for him to say precisely what, 
for on the face of things Turner was the same as ever. Nothing in her speech or actions was different, but there was in her manner, in the very air that surrounded her, something elusive and subtle that set him all in a tremor. There was a change in his favour. He felt that she liked to have him with her, and that she was trying to have him feel as much in some mysterious way of her own. He could see, however, that she was hardly conscious of doing this, and that the change was more apparent to his eyes than it was to hers. "'Must you really go home now?' he said, as Turner began to talk of leaving soon after supper. They had been sitting out the dance under a palm at the angle of the stairs. "'Yes,' answered Turner. "'Howard has the measles, and I promised to be home early. Delphine was to come for me, and she ought to be here by now.' "'Delphine!' exclaimed young Haight. "'Didn't you come with Van?' "'No,' answered Turner quietly. Only by her manner, and by something in the way she said the word, Haight knew at once that she had broken definitely with Vandover. The talk he had had with her at her house came back to him on the instant. He hesitated a moment, and then asked, "'There is something wrong? Has Van done anything? Never mind, I don't mean that. It's no business of mine, I suppose. But I know you care for him. I'm sorry if but he was not sorry. Try as he would, his heart was leaping in him for joy. With Vandover out of the way, he knew that all would be different. Turner herself had said so. Oh, everything is wrong, said Turner, with tears in her eyes. I have been so disappointed in Van. Oh, terribly disappointed. I know, yes, I think I know what you mean answered young Haight, in a low voice. <laughs> Please, don't let's talk about it at all, cried Turner. But young Haight could not stop now. Is Van really out of the question, then? he asked. Oh, yes, she exclaimed, not seeing what he was coming to. Oh, yes, how could I, how could I care for him after, after what has happened? Very much embarrassed, young Haight went on, I know it's unfair to take advantage of you now, but do you remember what you said once, that if Andover were out of the question, that perhaps you might, that it would be, that there might be a chance for me? Turner was silent for a long time, and then she said, Yes, I remember. Well, how about that now? asked young Haight with a nervous laugh. Ah, answered Turner, how do I know? So soon. But what do you think, Turner? He persisted. But I haven't thought at all, she returned. Well, think now, he went on. Tell me, how about that? About what? Ah, you know what I mean, young Haight replied, feeling like a little boy. "'About what you said at your house that Sunday night. "'Please tell me. "'You don't know how much it means to me.' "'Oh, there's Delphine at the door,' suddenly exclaimed Turner. "'Now, really, I must go down. "'She doesn't know where to go. "'She's so stupid.' "'No,' he answered. "'Not until you tell me.' "'He caught her hand, refusing to let it go. "'Ah, I mean you are to corner me so,' 
she cried, laughing and embarrassed. Must I? Well, I know I shouldn't. Oh, I just detest you. Young Haight turned her arm palm upward and kissed the little circle of crumpled flesh that showed where her glove buttoned. Then she tore her hand away and ran downstairs, while he followed more slowly. On her way back to the dressing room, she met him again, crossing the hall. Don't you want to see me home? she said. Do I want to? shouted young Haight. Oh, I forgot, she cried. You can't. I won't let you. You have your other dances engaged. Oh, damn the other dances, he exclaimed. But instead of being offended, Turner only smiled. Towards one o'clock, there was a general movement to go. Henrietta Vance and Mrs. Vance were inquired for, and the blue and white opera cloaks reappeared, descending the stairs, disturbing the couples who were seated there. The banging of carriage doors and the rumble of wheels recommenced in the street. The musicians played a little longer. As the party thinned out, there was greater dance-room, and a consequent greater pleasure in dancing. These last dances at the end of the evening were enjoyed more than all the others. But the party was breaking up fast. Turner had already gone home. Mrs. Vance and Henrietta were back at their places in front of the mantel, surrounded by a group of gentlemen in cape coats and ladies in opera wraps. Everyone was crying, Goodbye! or Good night! in assuring Mrs. Vance and Henrietta of the enjoyableness of the occasion. Suddenly the musicians played Home Sweet Home. Those still dancing uttered an exclamation of regret, but continued waltzing to this air the same as ever. Some began to dance again in their overcoats and opera wraps. Then at last the tired musicians stopped, and reached for the cases of their instruments, and the remaining guests, seized of a sudden panic, lest they should be the last to leave, fled to the dressing-rooms. These were in the greatest confusion. Everyone was in a hurry. In the gentlemen's dressing-room there was a great putting on of coats and mufflers, and a searching for misplaced gloves, hats, and canes. A bass hum of talk rose in the air, bits and ends of conversation being tossed back and forth across the room. You haven't seen my hat, have you, Jimmy? Did you meet that girl I was telling you about? Hello, old man. Have a good time tonight. Lost your hat? No, I haven't seen it. Yes, about half past ten. Well, I told him that myself. Uh, you bet it's the man, the Russell, that gets there. Come round about four, then. What's the matter coming home in our carriage? At the doors of the dressing rooms, the ladies joined their escorts. And a great crowd formed in the halls, worming down the stairs and out upon the front steps. As the first groups reached the open air, there was a great cry. Why, it's pouring rain! This was taken up and repeated and carried all the way back into the house. There were exclamations of dismay and annoyance. Why, it's raining right down! What shall we do? Tempers were lost, brothers and sisters quarrelling with each other over the question of umbrellas. Ah! said Geary, delighted, peeling the cover from his umbrella in the vestibule. I thought it was going to rain before I left, and brought mine along with me. Ah, you bet I always look out for rain. On the horse block stood the caller, chanting up the carriages at the top of his voice. The street was full of coupés, carriages, and hacks, the raindrops showing in a golden blur as they fell across the streaming light of their lamps. 
The horses were smoking and restless, and the drivers in oilskins and rubber blankets were wrangling and shouting. At every instant there was a long roll of wheels interrupted by the banging of the doors. Near the caller stood a useless policeman, his shield pinned on the outside of his wet rubber coat, on which the carriage lamps were momentarily reflected in long, vertical streaks. In a short time all the guests were gone, except the one young lady whose maid and carriage had somehow not been sent. Henrietta Vance's brother took this one home in a hired hack. Mrs. Vance and Henrietta sat down to rest for a moment in the empty parlours. The canvas-covered floors were littered with leaves of smilax and La France roses, with bits of ribbon, ends of lace, and discarded Figurian bonnets of tissue paper. The butler and the second girl were already turning down the gas in the other rooms. And a great crowd formed in the halls, worming down the stairs and out upon the front steps. As the first groups reached the open air, there was a great cry. Why, it's pouring rain! This was taken up and repeated and carried all the way back into the house. There were exclamations of dismay and annoyance. Why, it's raining right down! What shall we do? Tempers were lost, brothers and sisters quarrelling with each other over the question of umbrellas. Ah! said Geary, delighted, peeling the cover from his umbrella in the vestibule. I thought it was going to rain before I left, and brought mine along with me. Ah, you bet I always look out for rain. On the horse block stood the caller, chanting up the carriages at the top of his voice. The street was full of coupés, carriages, and hacks, the raindrops showing in a golden blur as they fell across the streaming light of their lamps. The horses were smoking and restless, and the drivers in oilskins and rubber blankets were wrangling and shouting. At every instant there was a long roll of wheels interrupted by the banging of the doors. Near the caller stood a useless policeman, his shield pinned on the outside of his wet rubber coat, on which the carriage lamps were momentarily reflected in long, vertical streaks. In a short time all the guests were gone, except the one young lady whose maid and carriage had somehow not been sent. Henrietta Vance's brother took this one home, in a hired hack. Mrs. Vance and Henrietta sat down to rest for a moment in the empty parlours. The canvas-covered floors were littered with leaves of smilax and La France roses, with bits of ribbon, ends of lace, and discarded Figurian bonnets of tissue paper. The butler and the second girl were already turning down the gas in the other rooms.